Our scripture reading this Easter Sunday morning comes from John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went out to the tomb early while it was still dark, saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter, the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him, and he went to the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who came into the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and she looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Now when she said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. And she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and she said to him, Robani, Robani, which is to say, teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she'd seen the Lord and that, she had, that, that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day, that evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hand and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. This Easter weekend is the high point on the church calendar. It is like a parent going in and pulling the drapes back so that the sun blasts into the eyes of a sleepy, slumbering child and wakes them up. That's what the gospel is like as it comes in and it drowns out and eradicates and dissipates the darkness, the chronic, disappointing news that is bombarding us in this world. The gospel comes in, the message of the resurrection comes in as this good news that announces that there is a defeat of our common enemy. If you're here today and you are a Christian or agnostic or otherwise, we all have a common enemy, death. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the announcement of the end of our common enemy. There's a comedian named Russell Brand. He wrote a book on recovery because he struggled with addiction his whole life. And in it, he has sort of has lots of existential thoughts. 
And he, sa- and he says, you know, we are all hurtling towards the boneyard. But we don't want to think about hurtling towards the boneyard. So we hide away in our citadels of glistening screens to distract ourselves. So that this thing that we call happiness and joy is really just moving from one small distraction to the next. So that we won't have to think about the inevitable end of the boneyard. The gospel comes in. At this glorious good news, the end of death at being final. That Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. And we are all living into narratives. And as Christians, we are living into that glorious narrative. The gospel has swept us up into this glorious narrative. This is why here as we worship at Redeemer, we are excited about living to the obedience of Christ. We desire to live to God's glory. We want to live on mission in the city. And we never want to reduce any of that to just being a, a, a faith that is sort of just going along and trying to walk out morals and ideals and sort of putting Christ and him crucified to the corner. We never want to do that because by shrinking down the grandness of the gospel, we therein lose the power that motivates the Christian life. There's a play by Peter Schaefer called Armadeus, and in it he has the cynical old composer. And the cynical old composer contrasts his operas uh, telling and retelling stories of heroes to tedious and stale music. And he contrasts his work with the work of Mozart. And he says that Mozart takes characters off the street, barbers and chambermaids, and he makes them into gods and heroes. And I, through my stale and tedious music, have made gods and heroes ordinary. And we never want to make the gospel ordinary. Our Christian faith is not ordinary. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the end of the finality of death that is the motivator for all that we do. The motivator for our desire to live in imitation to Christ, live lives of holiness, and live in mission on this city. It's because of the grandness of that narrative that has so captivated our hearts that it motivates motivates and reanimates our lives from the inside out. And so today is the celebration, and we look at this text we see that there, we, the entire gospel narrative gives tremendous Easter eggs that have been around since Genesis. We'll look at some of them this morning as we celebrate. But uh, very quickly before I get to that, if you are exploring faith and you've been with us at Redeemer um, and you've uh, been exploring Christianity and who Jesus is, I want to mention two things quickly because most of the rest of this morning is focused on the third thing. But uh, I want to just very quickly get you to consider the cause of the cosmos, and the course of history. And then where we're going to spend most of our time this morning is on this creator and compassionate king. But just very briefly, and I I want to mention the cause of the cosmos simply for the purpose of perhaps inviting you to consider some common ground. Because you've shown up to church on a day where we're talking about resurrection, which may seem totally fantastical and unbelievable to you. What I want you to consider is that if you're here this morning and you're a naturalist, you also believe in life coming from death. You already believe in everything coming from nothing. And you already believe in all things that are alive coming from a state that was dead. So we've both chosen our phenomena. And this morning I'm inviting you to consider that Jesus Christ, God incarnate, is the answer behind the phenomena. We both believe in a universe that spun from nothing. I'm just inviting you to consider that is 
Not just a heavenly cosmic parlor trick with no purpose or nothing behind it. You and I both believe in virgin births. I in the virgin birth of Christ and you in the virgin birth of the universe. And we both believe in resurrection. Because even if you're a Carl Sagan fan in his documentary in the 70s, Carl Sagan, as he's describing how non-life became life and sentient, he uses the phrase, whatever happened, and continues on in his exposition of how non-life became life. You and I are both already believe in life from death. So I'm just inviting you into that common ground as we consider uh, this resurrection narrative this morning. Life from lifelessness. Secondly, the course of history. Christian faith is not a belief in a missing body. In the text that we read this morning, Mary was concerned that they stole the body. Most of the narrative around history was that they stole the body. But I want you to consider the course of history um, that Christian faith is not founded on a missing body. It's founded on a resurrected body that was witnessed by hundreds and hundreds of people. You may push back on that and say, yes, but the problem is the narrative, all of the narratives you're using are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I need more historical documentation to get around believing that that's true. Here's what I'd invite you to consider in terms of the course of history. So from a historical literary context, we only need a handful of eyewitness accounts from different perspectives to consider as historians that something is true. For example, we have two different accounts of the attack that Hannibal did as he came across the mountains on the backside to attack Rome, the greatest military conquest, one of them in the ancient world history. But there's only two accounts of that, and both accounts have some different details. But no historian is going to read those two accounts with varying details and conclude that it never happened. They're going to read those two accounts with, with you know, different details and conclude that it absolutely happened. The question is, how did it happen? Tiberius was one of the, large, the greatest leaders in all of Roman history. And do you know how many accounts we have documenting his life? Four. So how is it that the great, one of the greatest leaders in, in world history has four accounts to his name, and then a small carpenter from a backwater town in the Middle East who spent 30 years of his life as a carpenter and three years claiming to be God has four documented accounts of his life. We have as much or more, arguably, about the life of Jesus Christ as we do about Tiberius of Rome. So I'm just inviting you to consider that in the course of history, I'm not reading fairy tales and, and fables this morning. That if you're here and you're a person of reason, you can also be a person of faith. These things are not at odds with each other. If this were some sort of a legend or a narrative, you would never write it this way. For a lot of reasons I'm not going to get into this morning for the sake of time. But suffice it to say that the the first eyewitness of the resurrected Christ is a woman. And all of the four gospel accounts don't shy away from that. There's no self-respecting Roman or Greek or Jew that would ever believe that this was true and follow Christ if he had not resurrected and been seen bodily. Nobody would believe this because you would never write a legend that way. The Babylonian Talmud at the time said, it's better that the words of the law be burnt than put in the hands of a woman. That's a direct quote. That's how offensive the ancient world was as it related to women's testimonies being ridiculous. In the second century, Celsus, the philosopher, wrote, you cannot believe in the resurrection narrative of Jesus Christ because the witnesses are women and women are hysterical. That's what he wrote. So in a world where it would never be believed, all four gospel writers are like, this is the story, this is how it happened, and we're sticking to it. The first evangelists were women. 
So I'm just inviting you, if you've been in this journey with us at Redeemer, to consider these two things. The cause of the cosmos and the course of history. That these are reliable reasons to not have to check your faith at the door to believe in the resurrection. If you would like to talk about that more, you can reach out to me. I'd happily sit down and have a coffee and we can deep dive into all kinds of interesting things. I'd be happy to do that. But let's spend the rest of our morning in celebration about this compassionate king. The compassionate king who is the creator. Jesus Christ, the Lord of creation, he rose from death to bring recreation. The resurrection event, it is an inauguration. It is the assurance we have that God will restore absolutely everything. The Christian faith teaches, and I say it often here at Redeemer, that in the end of our eschatology is not evacuation, it is restoration. That God is not taking us out of this material world, he is restoring this material world. Grace is going to perfect everything. In verse 12, we see that the apostle describes what Mary sees and um, reveals God's grace in a really striking way. She sees these two angels sitting at each end of the slab of stone where Christ was laid. And this is a fantastic Old Testament Easter egg because all throughout the Old Testament, the, the priests would come to atone for the sins of the people by sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. The mercy seat was a slab of stone the length of a man and there was angels carved at the head and the foot of it. And what does Mary see? but a slab of stone the length of a man with angels sitting at the head and the foot of it with the blood-stained stone of Christ who is the greater temple, the high priest who had offered himself as the substitutionary atoning sacrifice for our sin. Sin is the condition humanity is born into. Sin is why the world is always going sideways. Sin is the undercurrent of re- underneath the endless catalog of evil, the ways in which we never cease to creatively hurt one another. And sin is the reason why graveyards exist. And Jesus Christ came to save us from our greatest enemy and our common problem, which is sin. The New, Te- the New Testament uses the words eternal life. Jesus uses the words eternal life. And to borrow from Hebrew scholar Tim Mackey, the phrase eternal life, in the he- in original Hebrew, Jesus is using that phrase from the original Hebrew, which, me- which meant of the age. You see, we are all living in an age of death. But what is coming is an age of life, inaugurated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His physical bodily resurrection is why Christians, we celebrate um, that Christ has come and made himself a tribute Uh, for our sin. And so we can look at these glorious Easter eggs all through from Genesis to Malachi to see that the Bible is not some story of a cosmic ogre who's out for blood, but it's a a love story. It's It's an epic where he comes to shed his own blood for the purpose, of course, of setting us free from sin and death. When you look at verse 15... We get another tremendous Easter egg. Jesus appears to Mary and he's in a garden. And she thinks he's the gardener. The one who's in charge of the garden. This should make us think of something. This is recalling us back to Genesis. The one who was in charge of the garden. The one who failed in a garden. This is inviting us to consider how Jesus is the second Adam. And you see, when you, when you read the Genesis account of Adam in the garden, the verbs that are used to describe what Adam is doing teach us that he is not a gardener. He's a priest. 
And that the garden is not just about tilling vegetables and fruits. The garden is a temple. The the depiction of the Hebrew poetry in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is given to intentionally invite the audience to see the realm of heaven is kissing the realm of earth. And when the realm of heaven where God is is kissing the realm of earth and God is commingling in a beautiful, mystical way that we can't even imagine with his creation, that is a temple. And Adam was given charge of that temple. Adam was the first priest in the temple of God in the garden. And Genesis uses the language, God took Adam. He took him and put him to tend and to keep. And all the original audience would have read those verbs, took, put, tend, keep, and they would have immediately associated Adam with priestly duties. And here we have Jesus, the greater Adam, in the garden with Mary, giving us a glorious picture of something here, that the first Adam brought damnation into the world by a tree in a garden. And Jesus Christ, the second Adam, redeemed us on a tree and confirmed his resurrection from a tomb in a garden. In Genesis, the Father created life with him in a garden. And in the Gospels, the Son is restored to life in a garden tomb. In the book of Revelation, spoiler alert, you go to the end. Guess what you find? A garden. A garden city. The Bible begins in a garden. It ends in a garden city. In Revelation, is, it's poetic imagery. It's, it's not intended to be read in a literal sense. But what the, what the poetry is inviting us to see is that there will be, in the end, a restore, the restoration of civilization, the humanity we crave, the world we wish we lived in without this paradox of hurt and pain. Sure, there's bright spots in life, but we wish we didn't live in the paradox of the ugly, nasty, horrifying things. And in the end, God will restore all things, and he will do it in a gar- with a garden city. The world that we live in, it's full of sorrow and injustice and pain and death because, of course, the sin-ridden old creation is still rumbling on. But what the resurrection teaches us is that there is a satisfying and certain physical sign in 33 AD in human history, that empty tomb, which means the new creation has come. It means that God is going to deal with the sorrow and the pain and the darkness. He is going to restore and recreate the world. He's going to raise us from death itself to enjoy it. And in the end, the deepest longings of the human soul will be realized. Emotionally, physiologically, intellectually, their deepest longings, they are found in Jesus Christ, they are found in his resurrection, because the deepest cry of humanity is that the world would be beautiful and that we would have beauty without brokenness. And my friends, that's what's coming. That's what gives purpose to the moment right now, the mission, the life that we live. It gives significance to all of our vocations and everything that we do. As various authors have expressed, Christians are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. We live in that already, but not yet. In verse 6, Jesus calls Mary to himself. He silences her fear with hope and peace. Her Redeemer lived. Jesus is continually calling you and I to himself. To silence our fears and our anxieties with hope and peace. Our Redeemer lives. And just like a criminal walks out of the jail cell after serving their time. On the third day, Christ walks out of the tomb after serving the time for our sin. Being separated from his Father. The one whom he loved from all of eternity. On the cross, Jesus said it's finished, paid in full. Three days later, this empty tomb that we realize, this is God writing it is paid in full across the, across the stars in a way that, across human history, in a way that is not easily missed. That the, 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 a, a way has been made that everything that God requires has been provided. The glory of the Christian faith, the motivator for our lives in this city, 
None of it is of earning. All of it is from enjoyment. All of it is from imitation. To borrow from J.R. Tolkien, <coughs> the gospel of Jesus Christ is not simply one more great story pointing to some underlying reality. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the underlying reality to which all other resurrection narratives point. All human beings have a fascination with the idea of escaping time, escaping death, holding communion with other creatures and living things, being able to live long enough to achieve our artistic and creative dreams, being able to find love that perfectly heals. Why do we have all of these longings as humans? It's because at our core, eternity is in our hearts. We were not originally created by God to die. And so there is a sorrow in death. But praise God, because of the resurrection, death is not final. And this begs the question, if death is not final, if this temporary, fragile, broken life we have is not the only one, how ought we to live then? And here we see that we are empowered for a life of the counterintuitive kingdom. The kingdom of laying the power down, using our gifts, our abilities, our resources, our time to love and care for the people sitting around us. For this to motivate our love and care in the city, suddenly everything matters in a beautiful way as we walk out patience and care and sacrifice and long-suffering and grace. We're, we're, living in, we're living in congruence with the, king, with the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated, with the, with the fullness of the kingdom that's coming. So whether we're, whether we're living with ecological responsibility and we're recycling cans, even the recycling of cans is significant and beautiful. Because we're not doing something futile that in the end is just a radical dislocation of what we think is going to happen. Everybody lives within eschatology. If you're here this morning and you're a naturalist, what you believe, my friend, is that in the end, the sun will burn out like all stars do. And at some point in the future, there will be no record of human existence ever in the cosmos. And a thousand years from now, five thousand years from now... Everything you say matters. Everything this generation is crying out and saying matters. None of it ultimately matters because most of us don't even know the names of our great, 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 great grandparents, let alone living by their core values. And by what reasoning do we have to believe that future generations should ever rise up and pick up the torch of everything that you fought for in your life because you considered it significant and they just carry that off into the future? A thousand years from now, if you're the greatest leader the world has ever seen, you might be a footnote in a textbook, but that's it. I'm not being dismal and morbid. I'm just being a realist. I'm just saying that everything we say matters. If not for the resurrection, if Christ did not rise, it only matters in a small subjective sense that somehow makes us sleep a little bit better at night. But in the end, it doesn't matter whether we were a philanthropist or we were dropping bombs on civilians. A thousand years from now, it's of no relevance. If in the end, death is the end. But you see, because death is not the end, then every act of love and care and service is working in congruence with an eternal kingdom. A humanity that God intended at the beginning that he is bringing in the end and we're just slowly living into it now. Every Christian that you know, by the way, if you're not a Christian this morning, every Christian is a dismal failure, starting with this preacher. Right? We have moments when we're not loving and caring and we're nothing like Jesus. But that is not, a, that is, that is not an argument against the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All that is is an argument that we all need the grace that we preach. 
Because all of your disappointments with the church and organized religion and preachers and Christians, those things are all true because all of us are humans like you who fail to live up even to our own standards. But you will not find any of your arguments and disagreements in Jesus Christ. You won't find them in him. The compassionate king. And so this is the beauty of the resurrection. As we're living into this thing that the human, the human soul is longing for at the deepest levels. You look at verse 17 and Jesus says to her, an interesting thing, don't cling to me. That's kind of cryptic. What does this mean? Some Greek scholars give us a little insight on this and so I was really thankful for their insight. That in the Greek, don't cling to me, it's not even prohibitive like stay over there, don't touch me. Because we know from Jesus' entire life he can't be defiled by being touched. He actually cleanses the defiled when they touch him. So this isn't like, don't touch me, Mary. I'm like in this state where I can't be touched by human hands. In the Greek, it's like, don't cling to me is inferring she's probably already clinging to him. And he's like, stop clinging to me. You can't cling to me forever. It's like Jesus' way of being like, Mary, Mary, there's more. I know you think this is it. The pinnacle. Christ has risen from the grave. And he's like, don't cling to me. Don't cling to this moment. Don't cling to your understanding of what's happening right now. There's more. Now we know what the more is. It is that Christ had to go, that the Spirit would come, that now here we are, that that we are his mobile temples, and now that Christ's ministry continues, his heavenly ministry continues through his church. And so in this, we see that there is more. And this is, of course, the mission of every church in the city, to do precisely what the resurrection was going to accomplish. That Christ would ascend, and we'll celebrate that on Ascension Sunday and talk about the significance of that, inaugurating event, the ascension, that the Spirit would come. And here you and I are full of the Spirit. We can live out the glorious implications of the resurrection in our city. You know, up until the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death was undefeated. It was like the big boss battle that nobody won. No, the, the, the enemies keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but oh, I defeated it. Yes. Oh, I got through that terrible phase of my life. Yes, that horrific thing. Whoa. Oh, I I never thought I was going to make it through this thing. It was so tragic for me to go through, but I've survived. Yeah, but you're not surviving death, though. That's the boss battle nobody gets away from. But then death is no longer undefeated when Jesus Christ comes along. When he defeats death. The significance of this, of course, is because if, if Jesus did not rise, if he's not Lord, then death is Lord. Your core values aren't Lord. The things you think matter in this life aren't Lord. Because a thousand years from now, ten thousand years from now, it's all irrelevant. And you might say, yeah, but Paul, society can't descend into anarchy. What are you suggesting? That we all just live like nihilists? No, of course. That would be ridiculous. I'm so thankful that regardless of everybody's worldviews, whether they're Christians or atheists, I'm glad that the prevailing idea in the city is like, let's love our neighbor. We sort of like adopted the golden rule and been like, let's like be kind to people. So no, I'm not suggesting nihilism. But what I'm saying is, you are living in a radical dislocation of what you believe. And I'm inviting you to revel and marvel in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it is a life of congruence into all of these things that we say matter and that we believe. The resurrection means that no hardship, no trial, no sorrow can destroy you because the only thing that could actually destroy you, Christ destroyed at the cross. To borrow from Douglas McKelvey, Death is no longer a period, but it is a comma that leads to the fuller thought. And so after the resurrection, when Jesus showed up, 
He shows his disciples his hands and his feet. He shows them the scars. And the last time they saw Jesus, he's on the cross. And they thought those wounds meant that he was ruining their lives. Everything, their lives were being absolutely ruined. But what those scars meant was that it was the, it was the, the fulfillment of grace for their lives. It was the empowering proof for the church. It was the power that was going to enable them to endure suffering, give their lives away. May the same sacrificial love and generosity and boldness that the Holy Spirit formed in that early church be formed in this church. And may we go out recognizing that those wounds are a sign of tremendous victory. The resurrection is the, insur- is the assurance that in the end, joy will come from all of your tears. Strength will come from all of your weakness. Rescue will come from all of your abandonment. Healing will come from the life of pain. Life is coming from your death. This is the glory of the resurrection. To borrow from C.S. Lewis, heaven once attained will work everything backwards until every agony is turned into glory. The resurrection was just as inconceivable the day it happened as it is today. It was just as hard for everyone to grasp the day it happened as it is today. But the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead that day will quicken your heart and your mind to believe it today, to live in light of it today. And I close with the words of Jesus from John 11. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And whosoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray.